Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, the journalist Sulome Anderson, was in utero when her father, the AP Beirut bureau chief Terry Anderson, was kidnapped. She met him for the first time as a six-year-old girl when he was finally released by his Hezbollah-linked captors. Her book, The Hostage's Daughter, investigates the circumstances of her father's kidnapping and also serves as a memoir of her own experience dealing with her trauma and the trauma of her family. The book was published about 18 months ago to critical acclaim, and it's since been optioned for a movie. And in our conversation, Suleme discusses what it was like to write and report this book. She also opens up about the impact her father's kidnapping had on her childhood and adolescence, and describes the catharsis she experienced after having interviewed one of her dad's kidnappers for this book. In the course of this conversation, we have some digressions about the history of the Lebanese Civil War and the advent of Hezbollah, and we also preview Suleme's forthcoming book. We kick off, though, discussing something a little different. Uh, Suleme has been working as a freelance journalist in the Middle East for many years, and she was recently the subject of an article in the Columbia Journalism Review by Yardena Schwartz that describes the challenges of working as a freelance foreign affairs journalist in a world obsessed with Trump. The article sparked a lot of conversations in my circles, and if you're a listener to this podcast, you know, I suspect you are someone who cares about learning about the world beyond Donald Trump, so you will be keen to learn how journalism about stories that are beyond the the headlines of the day have been affected by the unrelenting stream of news about Donald Trump coming from D.C. The whole journalism industry has been affected, and Suleme is someone who has been personally affected by this. And this article in the Columbia Journalism Review does a really good job of describing some of the challenges that she is facing and freelance journalists as a whole are facing in a world, again, that is obsessed with Donald Trump. I think you'll really appreciate this episode. I caught up with Suleme while she was in Beirut, and the Skype connection was blissfully strong. So enjoy this conversation with journalist Suleme Anderson. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I sort of noticed the change, right? I published my book, I think, like two weeks before the election, which was not great timing. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I just noticed that I got coverage and everything and and people were were interested, but but just it just sort of got drowned out by by the coverage of the election and Donald Trump, which was disappointing. Um, 
but then as I went back to the Middle East and started freelancing again, it just became more and more and more difficult to sell these stories. Um, and it took me a while to really register that that was the case because I'm really stubborn and I don't like to give up on these things. So I would keep reporting stories that I've found to be really interesting and important and that I know for a fact I would have had no trouble selling a few years ago. And I was just getting crickets from editors. Like the editors I've worked with for a long time wouldn't even answer me sometimes. I would have to pitch a story to like six or seven editors. Sometimes it would get picked up. Sometimes it didn't. Um, and it was just really difficult. And I was hearing this from other people too. It's not just, it wasn't just me. So I knew, you well, know, that, that it was a situation. What what kind of stories are, are we talking about that you were pitching that like before, you know, Donald Trump sucked up all of the oxygen of, of Washington DC and, and of the news media that you would have no trouble. Like what, what are some of the stories that you were pitching? Well, um, as I talked about in the Columbia journalism review piece, there was a, a, a big Hezbollah story that um, got killed. I won't say for which publication, but, um, but got killed for not reasons unrelated to Trump, as far as I could tell, just safety protocol confusion. Um, but then, but it was a great story. And then when it got killed, I started trying to pitch it elsewhere. And again, nobody was really, was, was really responding. Um, and that, that was the story that, you know, I, I thought was one of the best that I I've ever reported or had the opportunity to report. So that was one of them. Another one was during the, the whole issue around the Kurdish referendum and which, you know, was quite a crisis in that region. Um, I was supposed to go stay with a, a Kurdish tribe and do a story about that with a videographer. And I won't say again for which outlet, but we were supposed to get a letter to cross the border from the outlet that commissioned the piece. And I asked for the letter and I just, they just didn't even respond and they had already commissioned it and I just never heard back. Um, so we like just we crickets, just trick. like nothing. Like, like you, you work with an editor at a major publication. They say, yes, do this story. You make all the prep to do the story. And then when push comes to they shove, disappear. they don't actually, yeah. Yeah. It was pretty disappointing. And this is a publication that has been covering a lot of Trump. So I thought that that may have been the reason. Um, and, and just in general, there, there have been a lot of other, I'm trying to think of other pieces. I wanted to do a piece on, on viral war victims recently. Um, you know, uh, people who have gone, whose images or stories have gone viral, uh, you know, as, as part of a war. Um, and I thought that was a really great story. Again, nobody was interested. Um, and yeah, and, and I just actually, it's interesting because I just now got an email right before we spoke. Um, I got an email from this, this uh, female journalist who's just starting out and said, I read your piece and I don't know what to do. I'm having the same problem that you have. I took this, you know, huge expensive trip to the Middle East to, to report on a conflict that I found really important. And, and now I can't find anyone to buy it. Um, and so it's, it, it is, it is a larger problem. I mean, in the CGR piece, I, I believe I included. She included the statistic that forty-one um, percent of news coverage in Trump's one hundred days have been about Trump, and that's up from fourteen percent of any other president during that time span. I mean, that doesn't leave a lot of room left over for foreign coverage, you know. 
And I guess, you know, sometimes I, I was reflecting on, on your piece and I, I've sort of kind of almost given up on the idea that there can be like a sustainable model of journalism that covers the kind of stories that you cover that frankly that I cover as, as well that's absent of, of philanthropy. I mean, my, my operation is like 90% funded by philanthropy. And I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, I, I don't do the kind of reporting that you do that's far more expensive um from from foreign places so that's maybe part of it um but it, it just seems like the the models here are are broken and you're like the frontline victim of that yeah i mean i think it's not just trump and i want to be clear about that this was a bus- you're absolutely right this business model has been failing for some time now um you know with the ad some of the things are just out of everyone's control the advent of the internet um you know advertising prices dropped drastically um, you know, all news organizations are struggling to kind of um, adjust to this change, and they've been struggling for some time. Some of them are doing better than others. Um, and, you know, with for domestic reporters, I feel like Trump has been a real um, sort of invigorating event, um, but it just it's not that way for any other kind of reporting, I don't think. Um, and, and yeah, so, I, I mean, look, it's been hard from the beginning. I started reporting in 2011, so right when this started happening and well, well into that. Um, and I remember when I tried to sell my first story to another publication that I won't mention a very prominent one. Um, I was going to the Syrian border, um, to a town that shortly thereafter was overrun by ISIS. And, uh, I was interviewing, um, refugees, but it was, it was not the most dangerous piece I've done, but it certainly wasn't safe. Um, and they offered me a hundred dollars for it. (sighs) And I, I got them up to 250 and it was like this huge victory. And they were like, we never do this for th- first-time authors. And I was like, well, I paid my fixer $150, so I'm making $100 off the story. You know, it was it, – it's just crazy. Like, I mean, what are some, like, the, the economics of, of the kind of reporting that you do? I mean, so so you're going to report that piece on the Kurdish referendum that that fell through. Like, how much would you have expected to get paid for something like that? Well, that was what I've been doing recently, which helps with prices, is um, I work with videographers and I do multimedia pieces. And that's a good way to bump up the price. But then you have to split, obviously, the fee with the videographer. Um, but e- even so, you can get paid you know, up to $3,000, $3,500 for um, a story like that, you know, with if, if it's a good enough one. And, um, and so that's more than for print that I've been offered, you know, um, even some of the really good publications I write for, I can expect tops 600 maybe like, unless it's a, a magazine print piece in which they pay like by the word. Um, but that's rare. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, like you said, the, the, the economics of it just like doesn't add up. And I think we as a world are, are worse off for it, but what, like, are there any, like, what are some of like the, the deeper or broader implications of the fact that, you know, the, the, you know, the, the kind of twin, um, phenomenon of Trump sucking up all like the media attention, all the oxygen, plus the general decaying of, of, you know, the, the journalism industry, like how, what sort of implications are, are you seeing on the ground, uh, from those twin sort of phenomenon happening? Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm on Twitter a lot and I follow the, just the overall consumption of news. And, um, I think, from what I'm seeing, there's just a general like lack of awareness or concern that's happening right now with any other 
any other conflict or event, you know, and many times these are events that that may not directly impact the lives of Americans in this moment, but certainly impact American interests and have long term implications for us um, in terms of the wars we're involved in, in terms of, you know, regions in which we have special forces deployed, you know, things like that. Um, and, and just it's it just is is like a, a, a what do you call it a feedback loop where anything trump does anything he does i remember seeing a piece once in the washington post and they do great reporting don't get me wrong actually they're one of the few news outlets that is i believe um increasing their foreign bureaus which is great um but there was a piece about how there's a spider on trump's back and like <laughs> And somebody like slapped, like killed the spider. And it was like a whole piece about it and about the kind of spider. And <laughs> I was just like, wow, you know, I can't sell a story on like war and, and important things. But like this, it's an entire reported piece. Um, it, it, it just seems a little, um, it, we are losing out. We're absolutely losing out on, on our awareness of the world and our place in the world. And America has always tended to be one of those countries that sort of is very inwardly focused, but it's becoming, you know, to an extent that I've never seen before and I think is quite concerning. Um, so you mentioned you, you published your book uh, 18 months ago. Um, in, in the subsequent uh, 18 months, like, how has that book changed your, your career or have you noticed a change in your career since the publication of that book? Um, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's obviously, um, it, it's, it's been optioned and it won a few awards and things like that. And, and I'm, you know, I'm proud of it. Um, uh, I would say it changed my career. Um, I think it, it definitely gave me a bump in terms of prestige to say, I wrote this book and this is how it's done. Um, but, but in the day to day reporting of me trying to sell a story, it hasn't had that much no. impact, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think a number of my listeners are maybe a bit younger than us. I'm probably a couple of years older than than you, um, who might not be aware of of your father's story. Can you? I just sort of set the scene in which he was uh, kidnapped in in Beirut. Uh, was it in uh, you sure. know before you're born in 1985? Yeah. Um, so it was. He was with his one of his good friends, and they were uh, at a um, a tennis game. They went in the in the early morning to go play a tennis game. And apparently um, my father had not told my mother this. My mother was pregnant with me at the time um, that he had, they had tried to kidnap him a few days previously and, you know, anybody else would have left, but he did not. Um, And, and then they were at the tennis game. They noticed um, my dad's friend noticed a car following them and said, you know, if I see them again, I'll say something. But then they pulled up in front of his friend's house and car pulled up and three guys got out of the car. One guy had a Kalashnikov and he was, um, sort of, you know, acting as a lookout. One guy put a Beretta to my dad's friend's head and the other guy opened like the car and dragged my dad out of the car, um, and put him in the, in the trunk, in the backseat of their car. And then, uh, and then they sped off and then he was gone for six and a half years. At the time, what was known uh, about the the kidnappers, like who they were at at, at the time? And I, I know, obviously, the subject of your book is trying to figure out, you know, in more detail and more nuance, you know, what the situation was and who they were. But but contemporaneously, what was known? There was actually not a lot known about these people, and that's why going back and trying to sort it out, you know, now was was difficult. 
um, because at the time they, they, they knew that the group was called the Islamic Jihad. Um, they knew that they were in some way uh, associated with or, or um, linked, you know, intelligence-wise from a U.S. perspective with Hezbollah. Um, and they knew that, um, that they were kidnapping Westerners. They had kidnapped William Buckley, who was the CIA station chief, who they subsequently tortured to death. And he actually died in the same room as my father. Um, and they kidnapped a few other people. Um, but it, it wasn't it wasn't clear. And, and, and the intelligence, U.S. intelligence agents that I spoke with were pretty open about the fact that not much was known about them, that their intelligence was extremely murky. Um, they really didn't know who this group was, if they were a part of Hezbollah, if they weren't. Um, and, and that was what I tried to sort of uh, go into in my book. So in the context of the Lebanese civil war, like what was the strategic logic of, of kidnapping your father or some of the other uh, Americans that, that this group kidnapped? Well, that's, that's the most complicated part. It was so unclear what their, um, uh, what their purpose was and what their, what goals they hoped to achieve. They were always saying that they asked for the release of some of their, um, sort of fellow militiamen who were being held in Kuwait um, for terrorist activities. And um, they wanted the U.S. to pressure the Kuwaitis to let them go. And I always found that strange because, I mean, the, the, it, whether the U.S. tried to pressure the Kuwaitis or not, I, I don't think the Kuwaitis would have listened to the U.S. And it just seems like a strange, uh, you know, request to make and, and kind of an impossible one. Um, and, you know, they also wanted other things. They said, we want Israel out of Lebanon. We want the U.S. out of Lebanon. We want the U.S. to stop supporting Israel in Lebanon, um, things like that. And, you know, it, it, it was but but their overall objective seemed to be just to have um, leverage, human leverage. Um, and it was a very different time. Kidnappings were different back then. You know, now if a group like ISIS kidnaps you, it's not your life that's valuable to them. It's it's your death, at least as an American, maybe as a European, you might get the chance to be ransomed. But um, as an American, no, you're, you're, you're the glory, the glorifying violent of violence of your death is what's important to them. And that's the value that you have for them. Uh, but in my dad's time, you know, um, they, it was, he was basically human currency. They just used him as a pawn to get what they wanted. Can you maybe like set the the broader context of the the Lebanese civil war? Like, what was happening in in Beirut in 1985? I know it's like super complicated, but um, <laughs> for you know, and, and it was like a 25 year civil war. Um, but yeah. but around the time of of your father's kidnapping, like what what was happening? Like what what were, who were like the major sort of political players? The major players, like basically oh, for um, people who are like unfamiliar with the situation, how would you introduce like the kind of broader context in which this kidnapping occurred? Sure. Well, um, it was a sectarian conflict, you know, always. Um, it was the Christians, the the Sunni Muslims, the Shia Muslims, and the Druze who were in the main, they were the main sects in Lebanon. And they were all battling it out with shifting alliances that I won't get into because it's really complicated um, and doesn't make sense to anyone, um, not even them. And uh, and then there was the question of Israel. Uh, the, oh, the Palestinians as well. The Palestinians after the um, establishment of the Israeli state, a lot of Palestinians uh, and the PLO moved into Lebanon and used it as a base from which to um, fight Israel. And the Israelis uh, invaded a couple of times. They invaded, the big invasion was in 1982 and it was devastating for Lebanon. Um, and, 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 and that's kind of the context of how these Shia militant groups 
um, started to rise to power because they had the Israeli, you know, in their eyes, the Israeli invaders um, that to, to fight with kind of the, um, the, the, the purpose of their existence was, was at the time. And as they said, to, uh, to combat the invaders in their country. Um, and they were willing to do all sorts of things to, you know, make that happen and justify what they did. Um, so yeah, so it was a very, it was a very complex situation. Um, I can't even tell you how hard it was to sort through all the different, you know, factions and, and, and battles and people who were bitter enemies one second, all of a sudden were allies the next. It was a very confusing time. And the other thing is, um, at the time, Hezbollah, Hezbollah came out with its mission statement in 1985, actually. But um, prior to that, it, it hadn't really been, and it still wasn't for some years after that, a cohesive organization. It was kind of a loosely um, organized group of different Shia militias, um, some, and, and under, obviously, the Iranian tutelage and, and, and sponsorship, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard really um, fostered Hezbollah as a as an operation, but but they were you know satellite groups and groups that were you know had their own agendas and it, it wasn't the the cohesive organization that we now see today. Um, and and one of those satellite groups is is the the group that was believed to be you know responsible for the kidnapping of your father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's right. Um. So you know. You you said earlier, and you write a book, obviously, that, that you were not born when your father was kidnapped, but he was not there for the first six years of your life. I mean, what um, what did you know about where he was, what his experience was when, when you were a child? So I was always raised with the idea, you know, that uh, my dad had, I always knew, like I never, my mother never lied to me from as far back as I can remember. She would say, you know, some bad men have your father and, and he's coming home soon. She would show me pictures and tell me about him. Um, and, you know, everyone around me was constantly telling me, you know, your father's a hero. And, and, and I just like built up this incredible um, sort of, uh, you know, image in my mind of the superhuman one, you know, perfect man um, that to be fair, nobody could have lived up to that. Um, but it, it was, it was a very strange way to grow up. <laughs> Um, you know, we, it was like in limbo constantly just waiting for his return. Where, where were you growing up at the time? Mostly in Cyprus. Um, we, we stayed, we wanted to be close to Lebanon, but it was, you know, the war was still raging and and Cyprus was a good distance away. My mother did take me to Beirut a couple of times during the war. And I remember even as a small child, kind of the, you know, the, uh, shelling and the bullets and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we wanted to be a safe safe distance away. And and throughout this time, your your family had the support of the Associated Press, right? I, I think you, you've mentioned that in interviews, how, you know, th- that that organization was was kind of there with you the, the whole time, as opposed to now, in which if a freelancer gets kidnapped, you know, you're, you're on your own. Yeah. I mean, that I have to say about the AP, like, they were really wonderful. They took such good care of my family. They made sure we were provided for and um, and did everything they could to get my father out. It was a very different time. Um, I feel like news organizations took much more responsibility for their journalists and there were more staff jobs. And I have to say, um, <clears throat> my friends who have staff jobs, they don't seem to have a shortage of work because they have, you know, um, assignments that they need to do and, um, things like that. So, so it's, it's different. I do notice that, that, you know, they're not highly paid a lot of them and, and, you know, are, are extremely overworked. Um, so it, it, I think everybody's feeling this kind of tightening of the belt. Um, but 
but I think it's, it's in terms of just producing stories. I think it's easier when you're on staff, obviously, um, and safety wise as well. There are liability issues, you know, if a, if a news organization has a reporter on staff, that something happens to them, they have more responsibility. Whereas freelancers are definitely, as you said, on their own. Um, and I've had, you know, the problem is now news organizations, a lot of the times, like I have a great story I'm trying to do right now. I'm still in Beirut for a little while longer and I'm trying to, I've got one story picked up, thank God. Um, but another story that I really want to do, it's an incredible story and I just can't get anyone to commit to it because it's too dangerous um, in their eyes. And they say, you know, the only way to, that I could do the story is to go do it on spec. But the problem is that in order to do it, I need a commitment from a news organization so I can get a letter for the Turkish government to let me in. So it's, it's just like a catch 22. Well, what's um, the story? If can, can you say, if you can't say, I understand, but if you can say, no, maybe no, there's, no. maybe there's like a, uh, an editor out there listening. Yeah. Um, so it, the story that I have in mind is I want to follow. So Syrian families in Lebanon, um, are being just mistreated. So to an extent that's really horrifying, the Lebanese government has been, um, very clear about their their intention to to drive Syrians out of Lebanon. They just don't want them here. Um, Something like one in every five people in Lebanon right now is a Syrian. Is that right? Yeah, there, I mean, to be fair, like the country is just suffering under this incredible you know strain of all these refugees. But the way they're dealing with it is really inhumane, and they're they're just making their lives as difficult as possible. And many of thousands of them have actually been forced, maybe not directly, but 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 through pressure and through the just awful circumstances forced back into Syria. Many of them um, at the time, you know, a few few months ago, everybody said, oh, Idlib is a de-escalation zone, go there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them were forced into Idlib um, from Lebanon. And, you know, and then, then the Syrians started their offensive against Idlib. So now they're trapped in this like horrific situation um, in a war zone. And I wanted, what I wanted to do is report on the conditions for Syrians in Lebanon and then go to Idlib and follow some of these families um, that have been forced out and talk about their situation there as a conversation about refugee re- uh, return to Syria. Because a lot of people are saying, you know, oh, we can send them back to safe places. It's like, no, there, there are, really aren't safe places for them to be. So what w- was the um, return of those <coughs> Syrians to Idlib like a, a case of like refoulement or refoulement, as they say, you know, in, in which, um, you know, they're forcibly returned to a place that they shouldn't be returned to? Or were they just wanting to go because the situation was so bad in Beirut or Lebanon for them? Well, it's, I think I don't know that it, it was, um, you know, direct forcing um, from the government. I don't think they've done that, but <clears throat> but they've just placed so much pressure on them through um you know, uh, through denying residency, through arbitrary arrests and detentions and things like that, that it just made it impossible um, in many cases. So and and I believe the U.N. acknowledged that um, I forget the, the level of refugees for the first time um, since the war started actually dropped. Um, and they the U.N. said that, you know, some thousands of them have returned to Syria. So and they wouldn't I mean, that's not a place you would go unless, you know, the situation was very, very serious for you. Um, so, so going back to the narrative of of your book and and of uh, you know your your experience as as a child, um, you know I like I said I, I think I'm a couple years older than you. I was <coughs> maybe nine or ten, and I I have like very vivid memories of watching the you know NBC nightly news coverage of your reuniting with with your father. I believe it was like on a tarmac or something, if if my memory yeah. 
memory serves i was kind of like a, a news junkie and back back as a toddler back as a child <laughs> as well um and so th this was like a, a searing image that was that was like very seared in, into my mind as as a kid um and I, i'm just i'm curious to learn of your memories your experience of of that moment i, I know you've told this a few times on interview so <laughs> i apologize ahead if this is uh if this is like repetitive for you but i, I would just be no. interested in in learning it because it was like an experience almost like it was something I experienced as a child, but obviously like from a distance. I'm interested yeah. to hearing how, how you, you know, just, just went through that moment. Yeah, it was a very um, impactful moment. Like I remember almost everything about it. Uh, and I was six and a half. So I remember my mom waking me up in the middle of the night in Cyprus. And she said, your father's coming home. And I think we've had, we'd had one false alarm before that where my dad, where we thought my dad was coming home. And then we had a time when we thought he was dead. And my mom sort of had a conversation with me about that. Um, but this time she said he's coming home. And I just remember being really tired. <laughs> and we went on like one of those uh, Air Force planes or Army planes. or I don't remember if it was Army or Air Force, but it was like, uh, you know, a very military type plane. Um, and I was just exhausted. I remember throwing up on the plane. <laughs> and then um, we got to, to the um, American embassy in Damascus. And I immediately fell asleep on the couch. And my dad walked in the room and woke me up and I, and he just said, hi, I'm your father. Um, and I, I think I didn't, I think I was just really overwhelmed. I don't remember saying much. I just kind of sat there. Um, and then I remember him taking me by the hand uh, and my mother was obviously hysterical and, and, you know, he hugged her and they hugged me and then, and then he took me by the hand and we walked out into that scene that you remember, um, uh, with, uh, you know, cameras everywhere flashing in my face and everybody yelling and screaming. And, um, I just, I just remember being really overwhelmed by it and looking at my dad and just being, I think a little scared, um, and noticing that he looked very pale and, um, and his hand was shaking and he, and it was just all a very overwhelming experience. Um, but I remember looking at him and, and thinking that, that, you know, I, I had already realized at that point that something very terrible had happened to him because when I was five, we went to go visit um, Brian Keenan, who was one of his fellow hostages. He was released when uh, when I was five and we went to go see him in um, in Ireland. And I remember he had a much harder time. I mean, he was mistreated, I think, worse than my father was. Um, and he I remember looking at him at breakfast and he was shaking and he looked like a skeleton. His skin was yellow and he was trying to, you know, put sugar in his tea and he couldn't get it into the cup. And I just remember throwing like a huge temper tantrum and screaming and crying. And my mother taking me upstairs at that point and saying, you know, um, why are you crying? And I said, you know, is, is Mr. Keenan very sick mommy? And he's, she said, yes, but he's going to get better. And I said, is daddy very sick? And that was that moment I remember as being like, oh, oh, something like my father is, is being, is being really treated badly, um, and suffering a lot. And then when I met him, I realized in that moment that, that he had suffered greatly and it was, it was scary. It was, it was, it was a, a incredibly overwhelming moment for a child. Um, having sort of reported the circumstances of, of your father's kidnapping, what do you know now about why he was released at that moment? Well, it was complicated. I think at that point, you know, he, they had held on to him for a really long time. His case had been the most publicized, um, at least because he was American, because he was a journalist and all that. Um, and, you know, I think, um, they realized that they weren't going to get much more for him. Um, and 
also Iran and Syria, I think at that point, were trying to um, become sort of uh, develop a dialogue with the West or, you know, and, and then the hostages became kind of a, a, a liability for them. And then also something that I, I realized during my reporting that I <clears throat> believe was the case, and I'm sure people will argue with me about that, but from what I could find, um, so the Islamic Jihad was operating, was getting its orders, as I said, it was a kind of satellite group, but it was getting its orders separately from uh, Hezbollah at first. And um, it was being run by a sort of a, uh, not a rogue office, but a kind of semi-independent office within Iran um, called the Office of Revolutionary Movements or something like that, Office of Liberation Movements. And um, and so at the time, Iran was also very factional. So it was, uh, you know, people were jockeying for power, trying to establish control after after the revolution. And um, so at, 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 at some point, um, Hezbollah kind of also caught on to the fact that this um, this group's activities were hurting their cause uh, as a quote-unquote resistance movement, which is what they were trying to, you know, be seen as. And um, and they absorbed the group. They they took um, took on members like Mugnia, who then rose quite high in in Hezbollah ranks, and they've never acknowledged his role in, you know, in in the terrorism that he, you know that occurred. And they still celebrate him as a hero, which is pretty. They just had it. Who just, is that? Um, Imad Mugniye, he was the mastermind of my father's kidnapping and the bombings. Um, and he, they just had a big holiday for him here the other day. And it's just always, always interesting to like see how, that. How do you process something like that? But you're, you know, you're living in, in the city and like a good portion of the city is celebrating this guy that's responsible for such violence against you and your, your family. Well, it does give me some satisfaction to know that the Israelis <laughs> killed him not long ago, um, and uh, and 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 you know he he's he's he is a truly evil man. Um, and it, I, I, in my book, I, I discuss how I met my father's kidnap one of the men who held my father hostage, and we had long conversations. Um, and you know that was kind of the the big, I guess, reveal of my book. And that, that story is strange, and, and if we have time, I'll get into it. But. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, that's a case in which um, Hezbollah's denied involvement, and you know, the, the the from what I can tell, they they weren't the original kidnappers. But then when they absorbed the group, they certainly held on to the hostages for some time after that. So they're not exactly, you know, their denials aren't aren't 100 percent, or not even 50, maybe 50 percent have a root in in reality. And but actually, they they are in many ways um, quite quite culpable. And and just the fact that they could celebrate the life of this man who who committed so many acts of of terrorism, um, you know, the embassy bombings, the marine barracks bombings, um, and and Hezbollah has always um, said, you know, we're not terrorists, we're not terrorists, and and whether they are or not, I think at this point is is a subject for conversation. Um, but you know, how, you can't say that and then and then treat this man like a hero. Um, so, uh, getting back to sort of the, that that kind of narrative of your early days with your father, um, but what what do you remember of of your experiences like at home with him, like trying to have like a normal normal kind of father daughter relationship in in life? Well, it was very difficult. Um, that was for me the. It's funny when my dad came home. Um, well, I thought it was going to be. I thought he was going to be perfect, and he was quite damaged and and unable to. Um, to form a real connection with me because my father, like when he came out, everybody said, Oh, your father seems so, um, you know, so healthy. It's, it's so strange that, that, that he's not as, um, in such in the same condition as the others were. 
And I've come to understand that um, that's because my dad just built a wall between himself and his emotions. He just did not let himself feel for a long time. Um, and that wall doesn't come down when you're out of that situation. So it was very difficult for me because what I wanted was this, you know, the perfect daddy that I had always thought I was going to get. And, you know, what I ended up getting was a very, um, you know, a, a, ver a very uh, a damaged and, and, and sort of um, disconnected man who, looking back, um, I realized, you know, as an adult that he did his very best, you know, uh, my dad's a really good man. And, and as an adult, I, I completely see what, why he was unable to be the kind of father that I needed. Um, but at the time, you know, when you're a child, you don't understand those things. So I just Im immediately assumed, you know, my dad didn't love me and that it was my fault. And then I would be very angry about that. And I'm like, kind of, I was always kind of a feisty kid. So we would, and my dad, you know, is very, we, we have so much in common, me and my father, that like we would constantly fight, you know, um, and it, it, it was very difficult. I don't I don't think we really started having a, a meaningful relationship until into my 20s. Presumably, like when he was able to tell more of his story to you. Um, honestly, like even right when I started writing the book, I think it was 20. When did I start writing? I was 27, 28. And, um, and even at that point, I was just starting to get to the point. I, I remember reading, going back and reading the first draft of the manuscript and being like, wow, that's a lot angrier than the last draft. Um, and, and I, I think because actually the process of reporting on my father's kidnapping and understanding what he went through and, and, and getting to know him as a human, uh, like for example, the guy who kidnapped, one of the guys who held my dad hostage that I interviewed, he said to me, you know, your father, we all, this is crazy to think, he said, we all respected him. You know, he was a soldier and he didn't, he didn't take any crap from us. And, um, and he wouldn't, um, he would always talk to us and tell us, you know, why, what we were doing was wrong. And, 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 you know, um, and my dad told me a story. I, I find this hilarious, um, in this sort of a really dark way, but, you know, my dad would sit down and talk to the guards who spoke English and explain to them, you know, how can you say that you're, you're following God? God is not Allah said that you shouldn't, you know, hurt innocent people in the Quran, you know, you can't, you can't do these things and say that you're, you're following God's will. And then one of them would like sit and listen to him. And he was kind of, you know, sort of semi convinced by this argument. And then he came back the next day and he said, you know, the Hajj, which was the chief, their, their chief, the Hajj says not to talk to you anymore because you have a serpent's tongue. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, it was, it was just this process of seeing, you know, the, and, and, and then, you know, another one of my dad's fellow hostages told me the story about how he was really sick and, you know, my father just reached out and, and put his hand on his and didn't say anything, but he said, you know, that was probably one of the most amazing, he was really there for me and very kind. And, and so I got to see, you know, put these pieces of the story together and see that my father is like a wonderful man who loved me very much and did the best he could and was just not, he, he, he was in many ways emotionally crippled and, and he was unable, uh, you know, he, he was incapable of, of, of being, being the father that I needed. Well, can I ask how or why did you want to get into journalism having seen sort of the damage up close that, that sort of being a, a journalist, a reporter in a place like Lebanon, uh, you know, can, can do to an individual? Well, it's funny because I never wanted to be like all until I went to college. I graduated from college in 2007. So um, until probably 2000 and 
nine, ten, um, I really wanted nothing to do with journalism. Like I, I went to, I went to drama school at NYU. Like people would always ask me like, do you want to be a journalist? I'd be like, "Mm -mm, no, thanks. Um, not just because of what happened to my dad, but because I grew up around war correspondents and I, you know, even at a young age, I could tell they're not, they're not like happy, um, you know, sort of well-adjusted people. (laughs) And, uh, and I didn't really want to be a part of that. Um, but as I grew older and, um, you know, I realized acting really wasn't the world that I wanted to, to be in. And, um, and I just was casting around for something to do and with my life. And I realized, you know, I'm constantly reading the news. I'm constantly following the news. I care very much about this region and, and I love writing and I love talking to people and it just all kind of came together. And I was like, well, I guess, I guess this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and then, you know, moving to definitely moving to Beirut and starting to report here, looking back was, I think an effort to, to connect with my father and to get him to be proud of me in a way. I figured if I did what he was doing and, you know, did it well, that, that we would have a better relationship. And, and actually like it worked, we, we did bond quite a bit over this job. Um, and then as time went on, we began to bond more and more as father and daughter. Well, so how did the idea for, for your book come? I mean, it, it's interesting. It's sort of like half memoir, but half, you know, deeply reported um, piece. Uh, so where did the idea for to pursue this kind of dual track come from? Um, I mean, I came up with the idea. Actually, it was really funny. Most of the reviews of the book have been positive, but a couple of them were, um, sorry about like straight white men who like just did not like, get it you know they, they just couldn't um i guess they didn't have a lot of empathy for um for struggles of of, of a younger woman um and it was just it was interesting just a i apologize tangent, for but... all straight white men everywhere <laughs> no it, i just noticed that it was a pattern you know um and 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 that it was very like condescending like um you know itself like this kind of idea that i was being self-indulgent by talking about my struggles with mental illness and, and drug addiction and things like that um, which I immediately had the reaction like, well, you know, David Carr wasn't being self-indulgent. You know, men aren't self-indulgent when they talk about, you know, their issues, but I'm self-indulgent because I'm talking about mine. Okay. Um, but, but I noticed that, that, that one of them had a big problem with this, this idea of the dual track, um, narrative and, um, and, you know, I understand why it might jar some people, but for me, it was like, look, I, I really, um, I, I didn't want to come at this from a, from a self-indulgent place. Actually, I, I made a concerted effort to not write this like boohoo, what was me kind of memoir. And I wanted to, to make sure that I was, um, doing, you know, what I, what I love to do and what I, what I think, you know, my strength lies, which is reporting on, on, on this event, um, with some distance or at least, you know, as much distance as you can get from an event like that and examine it from a reporter's eye. But I also wanted to acknowledge that, it had had a huge effect on my life. And by doing this dual track thing, I wanted to, um, to demonstrate that politics and political events have human consequences. Like what happened to my dad almost destroyed my family, almost destroyed my life. And, um, and I think, you know, from, from our, from, you know, an average person's perspective, we watch these news events and, you know, we kind of just for like, they cease to be, you know, as soon as the cameras turn off and that's not the case. And I wanted to kind of make that point. So, um, how in the course of reporting this story did you, or can you tell the story of how you came to find one of the men who was your, your father's kidnapper? So, um, yeah. So as I was reporting this book, I started talking to people, you know, um, sort of not high rankers or anything, but people in and adjacent to Hezbollah. Um, and I started like 
interviewing them for other stories as well. Um, cause I reported other stories the whole time I was reporting my book and, um, and it just kind of, you know, both sort of happened simultaneously and it made sense. So, um, I went to go interview someone, this Hezbollah official in the South, uh, for a completely unrelated piece. And, um, basically at the end of one of the interviews, um, you know, he, 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 he found out who my father was and just like went white, like his whole face turned white. And he just said, you know, um, I feel ashamed. And at this point I had no idea, you know, um, who this man was. And I said, why would you be ashamed? And he said, I, f- I feel like you must hate us. And I said, you know, I don't hate anyone. I'm just trying to figure out what happened. Um, and then he said, you know, when you come back, you should come back and, and I know someone who was involved and like, I'll introduce you. And, um, and this went on for like months, you know, I would go see him do an interview maybe for another story and say, okay, where's this guy? And he'd be like, next time, next time. So this happened a bunch of times. And then at the end of one of the, the interviews, um, I, I come to find out that it was him, that that he had been the person who was involved. And I think, uh, at that point we had spent so much time together and he kind of God, he had a sense of who I am as a person. And that I, I wasn't like pursuing a vendetta because I wasn't, um, and, 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 and the interesting thing about, it was obviously I was, you know, when I found out it was, it was a very bizarre moment when you found out that the, this man that, you know, you've, you've spent hours with at this point and played with his kids and talked to his wife and eaten his food and drank his, drank his coffee. And it turns out that he was one of the men who, who held your father hostage. <laughs> um, it was a very bizarre, bizarre moment. And I, um, and I was angry. I was very angry. Um, and then but of course I wasn't going to cut off the, cut off the relationship because, you know, that, that was my original goal in reporting this book to begin with. Um, I mean, I never thought it would happen, but I, you know, as in a perfect world, they said I, I would want to meet one of them. So, you know, I, and I was very honest with him. I would say I'm angry, you know, you, you ruined my life. And, uh, and, and the interesting thing about it was that he was very ashamed. Um, as he said, he, he was, he, he has never, um, forgiven himself for, for what he did. And, and, um, and he shouldn't, you know, uh, but it was, but it was really interesting to get an idea of him as a human being and realize, um, and I, and, and I say this all the time, what, what, what I do is not excuse these people. Like I don't justify anything they do. Like they, terrorism is not justifiable. Hurting innocent people is never justifiable. But I think it's really important, and I think it's something that we really fail to do so much in our analysis and reporting and, and discussions about terrorism, is study these people as human beings and figure out why they become terrorists. Um, and and because unless you do that, you know you don't know how to stop it from happening. Like for example, mass shooters. Everybody wants to know about their, um, you know, if a white mass shooter in America, as we found out so horrifically so recently everybody wants to know about their psychology and what turned them into this kind of monster and how they could bring themselves to do these things um and there's a lot of conversation about that which is an important conversation that we don't have about terrorists um and so i think it was for me it was interesting to get the sense of you know a 17 year old um in a civil war who you know I don't necessarily think he would have been that kind of he would have done something like that if he had been raised in a different environment um and it was just it was it was interesting and infuriating and and, and very emotional did, experience. Did, did he ask your forgiveness? Yeah, yeah, did, he did. did. Did you give it? Yeah, 
I did. Um, not for him, but for myself. And that's kind of the end of the book, which I I'll, I guess I'm giving away. But um, <laughs> but it was this. It was a moment for me where I just realized, you know, I could keep going and this event, like I could keep reporting on it for ages. Um, and there were all sorts of you know different leads and strange things that came up in my reporting that I could have followed um, deep into the rabbit hole. Um, but and and I could also like maintain this hatred for these men and and my anger, or I could. Um, I could just let it go and, 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 and accept his, uh, I, I told him, I said, I'll never forget what you did, but, but you have my forgiveness because I don't want to live in this kind in that kind of bitterness. And my father has said the same thing, by the way. And, and that was cathartic for you. Yeah, it was. And, it was. and for, and for your father. I mean, my father always said that he harbored no bitterness for what happened to him. I think, for a long time, that wasn't actually true, um, but I think it is now. He just wants to move on, and that was kind of my attitude too. I just wanted to move on. Um, so, uh, looking looking sort of forward, looking next, you said the book got optioned. Um, it sounds like you know it'd be a great movie. So, so hopefully it'll, it'll get made. How how far along oh, yeah. the process is is that? Oh, I don't know. I haven't really been involving myself in it because I know how like I've heard many stories about yeah. how flaky that that whole thing is, and I don't want to get you know myself too excited or involved in something that may not ever materialize. But, um, but you know, I, I think, I think it's, it's progressing. So, so despite, uh, as we, you know, we kicked off talking about the challenges of, of doing the kind of um, investigative reporting and, and uh, storytelling that you do from difficult places. So what, what's next for you? Um, well, I'm going to be in Lebanon a little while longer. As I said, I got a piece picked up, which I can't really talk about right now, but I think it's going to be good. Um, and then I've still planned to return home and start working on my second book, which is going to be about um, uh, extremism in America. So, um, you know, I, I'll be discussing white supremacist groups and uh, and also cults, gangs, um, you know, uh, uh, extremist uh, Christian groups, extremist Jewish groups, and and white American converts to Islam. Um, so that's kind of the structure of the group of the book, um, where I'm going to be reporting on all those different groups and trying to get a sense for for our own um, homegrown extremism problem. And, and how has your, I presume your reporting from the Middle East has, has sort of armed you well with some of the mechanics of extremism? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about it is you see these parallels and they're so obvious to me in the way that people get recruited, people get radicalized. Um, it, you can see it from, because I'm so familiar with that process, um, you know, I've interviewed ISIS members, I've interviewed Al-Qaeda members, and, and obviously many Hezbollah members at this point. And, and you see um, a distinct pattern in how somebody becomes um, radicalized and becomes an extremist and, and ready to live in that way and, and do these kinds of things. And, and I find it, the parallels so, so obvious to me when you look at these groups in America, the kinds of so the psychology of the people who, who get involved, um, you know, all sorts of things. Um, and I think it's really fascinating. And now is the time for it. And, and presumably like the process of like earning the trust of an extremist is probably somewhat similar, whether you're talking about like a militia member in like Minnesota or like a, you know, Hezbollah member, like a, a, as I, like a reporter or, or is it different? Explain. No, no, I think you're right. I think it's, it's very similar. I think honestly, like, I, I feel like, um, it's a little different given context, but yes, yes. I think the process, I, I think to be honest with you, the process of gaining the trust of a source is, is um, I mean, obviously it varies from person to person, but um, I find that, that there are certain things help. And I think that the, the one thing that helps is to be very upfront with your intentions. I really don't, um, 
I pride myself on the fact that I don't really try to exploit or, 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 um, you know, be misleading about, about, you know, my role in, in this, uh, and, and what I need from them and what I want from them. And I, I think, you know, the transparency helps, um, but also, you know, um, just being, you know, the interesting thing is everybody, everybody without exception, I've interviewed stone cold psychopaths, you know, like diagnosed psychopaths. And they all want to be understood, Mark. They all want to be understood. You know, everybody wants to be understood. It's crazy. And they will, if they feel like you have that um, ability to understand them and, and you're interested and you, you know, you want to know their story, they will tell you all sorts of things. That's funny. I've noticed that doing this. I don't interview like, uh, you know, extremists on on this program, but I have notice that people just love talking about themselves. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, not, not like in a narcissistic way, but they have had life experiences that are worth sharing and want, you know, want the world to know it. And and I think the world is better for having heard some of these stories. Yeah. I think um, there's a, I did a story once um, about uh, psychopaths and sociopaths and uh, in America. And it was so interesting to me because these people a, I put out a request on like a sociopath blog and I could not get, you know, these people were all, I had so many responses and, you know, these people are, are, and are diagnosed, you know, they have no empathy. They have no feelings. They would watch someone bleed to death in front of them and feel absolutely nothing. You know, they probably would, some of them would kill someone without feeling anything, you know? Um, and it was so interesting to me because something I noticed with all of them is, when they were talking to me, they were just telling me all these things. And I realized that, you know, what they, what they were doing is they were relieved to drop the act with someone. Um, because in their daily lives, you know, they have to pretend to have emotions and, and be like other people. And in the conversations with me, they could just throw that out the window. So they, that was a really interesting thing because even they wanted to be understood, you know, even someone with no ability to, to have, you know, connect with another human being still wants to be understood. I mean, do you think there is a correlation between um, sociopathy and sort of extremism? Oh, yeah. I think I think the way I look at it is this. The people who, who direct terrorism, who um, mastermind it, they're oftentimes psychopaths or sociopaths. That's very true. But when you think about it, the entire population, for example, of a group like ISIS, they can't all be psychopaths and sociopaths. Like, statistically, it's not possible. So... From my from my perspective, there are many contextual elements, and um, for example, and the, you know the invasion of of Iraq, um, and and many other you know uh, aspects to the situation that produced ISIS, that made it easy for these psychopaths to recruit people who aren't necessarily psychopaths, uh, but are are you know inf- uh, easy is influenced or, or bitter or angry at their situation or whatever and i think the real key to stopping terrorism is to, is to change the circumstances so that those men don't have that kind of opportunity you know th- this is maybe a, a little off topic but you ever see that documentary act of killing about the genocide in indonesia in the early 1960s no oh it's 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 a good one but it, it's it's one that um sort of introduced me to the idea that like sociopath sociopathy is like a, a necessary element of like committing a mass atrocity or, or, or war crimes. Um, not sufficient, but, but definitely necessary. Well, I mean the Nazis yeah. too, you, you know, not every Nazi was a sociopath. It's just not possible, but, mm-hmm. but the, you know, the, 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 the situation but you know, I think it's safe to say Hitler had a severe personality disorder of some kind, um, narcissistic sociopaths, whatever. 
Um, and, 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 you know, the circumstances in the situation were such that this man was able to, um, to, to, to gain control of, of people who may have not been done those things in any other circumstance. Um, well, I look forward to reading your next book. That's for sure. Uh, um, and, and also your, your articles, uh, that are coming out in the next few months. I'll definitely like link to them on, on Twitter and all that for all of you who are, who are listening and, and want to follow her work. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for your, for your time. This was, this was really interesting and everyone should go out and buy your book and your next one too. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I appreciate you having me. Excellent. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate your time and, and kudos to the Beirut internet for, for sticking with us this whole time. Oh, yeah, that was great. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you very much to Sulame. And I will absolutely post link to her book on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And while you're there, if you're a new listener to the show, you can check out our archives of more of these kind of long-form interviews with journalists and think tank scholars and diplomats and policymakers who discuss their life and career with interesting digressions about historic foreign policy events along the way. We'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.